0: Is a very, very,
1: very fine house. And we welcome back to our show, which is Talk the Talk, which I should note, I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is off today. We have with us Congressman Jim McGovern for his time that we call Our House. And I want to ask you about Our House, Congressman McGovern. And in particular, I want to know how the indictment of Donald Trump is affecting the work of Our House, the People's House, as it is often called the front page of today's Republican. Let me just make two quick notes. The front page of today's Republican, the story, the headline is should Trump go to jail? The front page of the New York Times first amendment is likely linchpin of Trump's defense. Could you tell us please how the most recent indictments of Trump is affecting Washington DC and the work of the people's house?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, the good news is that we're in recess right now. Uh, So, uh, you know, you're spared from all the speeches that would be given in his defense um, on the House floor and on the Senate floor. But uh, look, uh, you know, this country is polarized uh, and Trump has contributed to that polarization in in very significant ways. And there's no doubt that this trial will be polarizing. But we have to do this because nobody is above the law in this country. And that's, And I mean, that's the principle that we all adhere to. Now, if we want to change that, you know, that's, that's, that's bad for our democracy. That's bad for our country. But, um, you know, th- this is not a political issue anymore. This is now before a judge and a jury. Uh, he'll have his opportunity to make his defense, and then a decision will be made. Uh, and I, I, I think it is, you know, I, I, I was talking to somebody earlier about the fact that you know, I'm old enough to remember when Richard Nixon uh, was uh, being impeached. And uh, people were saying, you can't do this it'll divide the country or, you know, it's bad for the country. Anyway, the process moved forward and ultimately he resigned. But it was the right thing to do because to turn a blind eye to what Richard Nixon had done, you know, would have been bad for our democracy. would have been bad for all the things we say we care about. And, look, this is not about free speech. You're the expert, Bill, on free speech. You can explain people in, in more persuasive ways than I can about why this isn't about free speech. Donald Trump could say whatever he wants. He can say the election was stolen. He can say the election was rigged. He could say he won hugely. He can say whatever he wants. He can lie. He, uh, that, that's, that's protected speech. But he is uh, being brought before the courts because of his actions, things that he did to try to rob people of their vote and uh this, these are serious charges they're necessary charges and you know we have to buckle our seatbelts and, and get through all of this i hope that they televise uh the court proceedings because i think it would be instructive for people to uh, to see and hear uh, how, how this how this goes forward i mean the watergate hearings were were televised and i thought that did it, did, did a a lot to help persuade people as to why Richard Nixon needed to leave, but I I hope these could be televised.
1: I would appreciate your perspective on how we got to a point where in recent pollings, in recent polls, it shows that Trump and Joe Biden are in a virtual tie. How can half the country, half the country, half the voters in the country, think that Donald Trump is an acceptable person to be the next president of the United States. It sounds completely outrageous. It is completely outrageous, and yet that's what the polls show. Can you explain that to me, please, Congressman McGovern?
2: I don't know if I can because I don't quite understand it myself. I mean, uh, Republicans have choices. They have other choices they can make. Uh, and people who you know have the same policies of Donald Trump but don't have – you know his record of criminality, so I, I mean, I I don't I don't really get it, and uh, you know I mean, Trump is a good showman, and he has managed to persuade, as you said, about half the country that uh, he's God's gift to the world, and uh, and people have bought it, and they're with him. I mean, I just, as I mentioned before, I just went and got my coffee and a. Uh, Italian bakery near my office in uh, in Worcester on Shrewsbury Street, and two guys just said to me, "Go Trump." <laughs> I like, I went to change my order to an Irish coffee. After that, uh, but the bottom line is, you know, he has his supporters out there, and and when I ask people who are supporting Trump, why do they support support him? It, it really isn't about policies. I mean, it's all it's almost about it's it's usually always about personality, and uh, but this is dangerous. We can lose our democracy. And I've said this before. I said we said this before the last election that just because we, you know, we 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 have a democratic system in this country doesn't mean it's there forever. And we've seen in history democracies move toward authoritarianism and fascism all over the world. And if Donald Trump were to win the presidency, you know, get ready for, you know, Whatever I mean, he he will he he will basically uh, eliminate our democracy as we know it, Uh, and you know I'm really really concerned about that, and I really think that should be a central issue of the campaign, because if you believe that you know the vote matters, or as John Lewis said, the vote is precious, almost sacred, then we all have to double down and work hard to reelect Joe Biden, and I say that to people who are lukewarm about Joe Biden. I mean, he, it, that's the choice you're going to have. And uh, of the two, there's no question in my mind that Biden would be the right choice.
1: It's still a long ways till the Republican primaries begin. Is there some sense of finality among your colleagues in the House that Trump is, in fact, going to be the Republican nominee notwithstanding that there is, well, months and months now, half a year until uh, the primaries even begin. Yeah,
2: I, I think there's a belief amongst Republicans that he's it, um, as evidenced by the fact that they're all rallying behind him. They're all afraid to say anything even mildly critical about him. They believe that if they do, that they'll have primary challenges. And, um, I mean, Trump just issued a statement the other day saying to the Republicans impeach Joe Biden. Uh, they, we don't know what, what, what reason he wants to impeach Joe Biden for. we says, impeach Joe Biden, otherwise you're going to have a primary challenge. So, I mean, my guess is we come back. Kevin McCarthy will tell the Judiciary Committee to start pursuing impeachment. I mean, I this is the way this is working. Whatever Trump says, they do. They're afraid of him. And I think they all believe he will be their nominee. And I think many of them believe he'll be the next president. So they're afraid. And uh, they're so afraid that they've sold out their consciences and they're, you know, they're just parroting whatever he wants them to, to say. And it's it's really quite sad. And, and, and what's particularly troublesome to me is that there are Republicans that I over the years have grown to become good friends with, who I admire uh, and who basically have just caved. I mean, I used to think they were people of principle. They'll tell me quietly that this is a disaster, uh, that he's terrible. Uh, And then publicly they will say he's the best. And so that's where we are.
1: What can we in Massachusetts do, if anything, at this point? Other than you're going to tell me we should register and vote, I know. But beyond that, things we can do?
2: You know, volunteer for campaigns, either the presidential campaign or um, congressional campaigns outside the state adopt a campaign call your family members who are out of state get them to pay attention um be engaged in the debate you know that you know there's sometimes amongst democrats we have this feeling when people say outrageous things we, we sit back and say oh we don't need to say anything because everybody will see through you know the, the the crazy statements um but they don't so we need to constantly correct the record whatever they say we need to correct the record and uh but we have, we, have, we have a level of engagement like we've never seen before, uh, because in my lifetime, the stakes have never been higher.
1: Congressman McGovern, I, I fully agree with that. The stakes have never been higher. That said, what I'd like to know is how do we in Massachusetts do everything we can to ensure that Trump is defeated, which means Biden wins. Biden is not is not going to convince Trump voters to vote for him. It seems to me it's a question of organizing and getting out the vote. And I'd appreciate your thoughts about that.
2: Yeah, well, absolutely. Look, there were, there are a thousand different organizations and different ways for people to to be engaged uh, and influence the election. Um, you know, not just in Massachusetts, but to help persuade people in other states and. As those opportunities get closer to the election, those opportunities arise. People ought to just uh, people ought to take advantage of them. Uh, and you know, you, you might think about your next year's vacation might be to go to a, a swing state and you know visit the sites, but also do some campaigning while you're there. But look at every vote counts. And as we saw in the last election, some of these states were won by a very very slim margin. Um, so. I expect that that will be the case again this time around. And uh, and I will tell you that uh, there's the passion on the side of the Trump people is intense. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, everywhere I go, people who are Trump supporters, you know, you know, get in my face about it like they just did at the bakery. But, you know, we have to have equal amount of passion because we're going to have to turn out to vote, not just on sunny days but on in the middle of blizzards in the middle of hailstorms you know when when it's when it's difficult and we're going to have to try to get people to the polls uh in ways that we 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 never did before um because our our, our democracy is at stake i mean um, this trump wins you know this system that we have um comes to a screeching halt i mean he's already told us some of the stuff he wants to do basically getting rid of you know um Almost everybody in in all the agencies who are not totally loyal to him. So if that were to happen, we we lose any objectivity uh, in our in our bureaucracy. That's just a scary thought that we're going to have you know decisions on the environment, decisions on um, civil rights, decisions on whatever, based on uh, politics and not on what is right. So um, so you know we, we you know as we get closer, I will be on your show outing different ways for people to get involved, but uh, uh, this is uh, this is the moment that uh, that we all have to stand up, um, and um, because we may if, if we we can lose all the stuff that we cherish about this country.
1: Congressman Governor, I'd like to turn to another topic. You mentioned that Congress is now in recess. I'd like to know in recess until when, and then what I want you to, to share with us is what is Congress going to do when it comes back to work, goes back into session. And in particular, what I've been concerned about, but I can't, there's no air or oxygen in the room to talk about it, it appears, whether Congress is going to pass appropriations bills, given the last I heard about this anyway, that Republicans are going to kill the appropriations bills, and without appropriation bills, the government ceases to function. Here we go again. What is going to happen?
2: Yeah, so one of the problems that... um we have right now is that in order to become speaker, Kevin McCarthy gave away all of his power as speaker, you know, so he, he packed the rules committee with freedom caucus people and the rules committee, as you know, which I was the chair of is the traffic cop of Congress. You can't get bills on the floor unless the rules committee moves them to the floor. Um, He also gave any uh, Republican the right to uh, vacate the chair, which means they can, anyone can raise a, uh, a, a privilege resolution demanding the speaker be expelled and he can only lose five votes. Um, and if he loses five votes, he's out. So, you know, he's, he's operating under those, under those pressures and realities. And, um, and we have a bunch of people in the Freedom Caucus who really don't care if the government is running or not. They don't care if we shut down the government. Uh, you know, they're, they're not interested in, in, in making government work for people. They're interested in attention and Twitter followers and just political posturing. And, you know, we are hearing from some of them that uh, they're happy with shutting down the government unless appropriations bills are reduced, not just a little, but a lot. Um, you know, the major programs are cut. And, um, I mean, they, had a, they have an agricultural appropriations bill that we're supposed to take up uh, that, that cuts WIC, the Women's <laughs> and Children's Program substantially uh you know they want to gut snap they want to gut you know uh assistance for senior citizens they want to cut you know um, monies uh you know for health care uh i can go on and on and on and so you know that's where we are and we have three weeks uh in september that we're in session and um to get all this done and uh you know i'm not sure what the plan is but uh you know, it's very possible that they could just shut the government down. And um, that would be disastrous for our economy, by the way, uh, at, at a time when we can't afford to have any more hits to our economy. Things are starting to move in the right direction. This would move us in the wrong direction.
1: Could you spend one more minute with us on this, please, Congressman? When you talk about the government shutting down what does that look like? What would that mean on day one after this year's appropriations uh, stop funding government services? The government itself. What
2: happens? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it means all the federal agencies agencies are shut down. I mean, we're we're, we're getting inundated right now. For you an example: getting inundated right now with people trying to get passports. We don't have enough people working processing passports, um, and it's taking forever to get passports. Uh, but if the government shuts down. You, you can't get a passport, you know. Um, bene- certain benefits uh, will not float to people. Um, you know, g- uh, government employees will be, you know, will be told not to show up to work. Um, you know, we won't have an environmental protection agency working. We won't have, um, you know, a Department of Labor working. We, uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure what they're going to do with the military, whether they, you know, they're going to try to get the military. Um, defense bill passed separately or not, but I mean, the bottom line is conceivably, you know, we wouldn't have any funds for our, you know, for our men and women who serve our country. So, I mean, everything that government funds, everything the government influences, everything the government oversees comes to a halt. And, um, you know, uh, it would be a, it's just, a, it's just a, a terrible thing to do. It's a dereliction of our duty uh, if you shut the government down. We may not like what the final uh, product looks like, but the deal is that you know, the one thing we have to do is keep this government running. And uh, it makes us look silly um, in the eyes of the world, uh, but a lot of people will be hurt.
1: The Defense Authorization Act and the defense appropriation is, as I understand it, bottled up because, because they're are riders, that is amendments to the appropriations bills that says that the military shall not in any way allow people to leave the state where they're serving to go have an abortion in a state where abortion is legal. And there are all these hot-button social issues that they've attached to the defense spending bill. Is that really going to kill defense bill? I mean, it's the one semi-bipartisan thing that happens in the Congress, or at least traditionally.
2: Well, yes. So I should tell you, in full disclosure, I normally vote against the defense bill because it's too damn big. Uh, but this is a bill that, as you said, is historically bipartisan. It was reported out of the Armed Services Committee 58 to 1. Um, and then they brought it to the Rules Committee. Uh, and the Republicans attached all these riders to the bill, like the one you just said. that had nothing to do with defense. Um, and the bill became a very partisan bill um, on the House floor. And uh, and some say, say, well, the Senate will clean it all up and then send it back to us. What the Freedom Caucus people are saying is, yeah, you clean it up if you want, but we will not schedule it. We will not bring it up for a vote unless it contains some of these egregious policy writers that we we attached. So, um, you know, I think if we could bring it to the floor for a vote, it would, you know, and we can get rid of these writers, it would pass. But with the Freedom Caucus, people are saying to Kevin McCarthy, you do that, and we're going to ask that you leave a speaker. So that, the, that, that's, the, that's, their, that's their leverage. That's the, 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 their, their strength in these negotiations is because they're threatening the Speaker of the House, who I think is the worst, most incompetent Speaker of the House I've ever witnessed. But they're threatening his expulsion if you know he doesn't uh, you know jump when they tell him to jump. So that's where we are.
1: Congressman McGovern, if you could spend one more minute with us, I'd really appreciate it. Anything you can tell us with regard to the federal government's response to these torrential rains that we've experienced in western Massachusetts?
2: Yeah, well, USDA has announced, um, you know, uh, you know, some of our areas has declared them as, as disaster areas, which will provide some relief to our farmers. But we need to, we need to do much more. Uh, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I, I think we all need to realize is that cur- current farm policy seems to um, account mostly for the big and, and industrial farms and doesn't really have enough of a safety net for our small and medium-sized farms. And we're trying to find ways to, within the existing system to get more and more help to our, our local farms. We're also you know, launching a, 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 a GoFundMe effort, too, to try to raise money uh, from people all across the state to help provide um, necessary assistance to our farms. Look, uh, our, our, our farms are an important part of our economy, uh, not just in Western Massachusetts, but all throughout Massachusetts. And, um, you know, and people work awfully hard and, um, you know, we, 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 can't abandon them right now. We, uh, so I urge people to make an e- extra effort to buy locally, uh, to find out ways that you can help our local farms, um, you know, the state, um, Nelly Blay and uh, Joe Comerford just get some money in there for some of our farms, which is really really important in the state budget. So we are all working at the state and federal level to to try to to rise to the occasion, and um, but we're not going to rest until we we make sure that our farms are are, are taken care of. And um, again, I this, these natural disasters, these, this flooding, the uh, these rivers that are rising, the Connecticut River, the Deerfield River, it, it's it's. Um, it's all related to climate change, I will tell you that. Uh, I know my Republican friends will like to hear it. Uh, but uh, but we need, a, we, we need a better safety net for our small and medium-sized farms.
1: We leave it there. We've been speaking with Congressman Jim McGovern. Thank you so much, Congressman. We really appreciate appreciate your time and your insights.
2: Be
3: safe. We pretty much shut it down, and our response is a 10. That's close enough of a bad work people are getting better just by going back
4: to work more talk the talk with bill newman and buzz eisenberg coming up right here on whmp
3: there are days where you just want to hang a sign on the door gone fishing but you're not going to get a line in the water today so you go to paul and elizabeth's which may be the next best thing order the fish and chips It's tempura-style fish. The batter's so light and airy. The chips are fresh cut in Paul and Elizabeth's kitchen. Have you tried Paul and Elizabeth's Cajun sampler? Shrimp, scallops, and cod with a spicy etouffee sauce.
5: Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton.
6: Does your knee pain keep getting worse? How about that pain in your shoulder, hip or back? Don't let them tell you steroids and surgery are your only options. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics can make that pain go away with all natural advanced regenerative medicine. They're helping people here every day with these amazing natural treatments that restore and repair damaged joint tissue. It's like turning back the clock. Regenerative medicine uses concentrated healing agents from your own body to stimulate that damaged tissue in your joints so they can work again like they're supposed to. And there's zero downtime. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in this exciting medical breakthrough. Patients here are getting real lasting relief and are saying no to surgery and drugs. If you have pain due to injury or arthritis, check out this remarkable option. And the consultation is free. Call QC Kinetics now at 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450.
4: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: As I mentioned, Buzz Eisenberg is off today. We will be joined later on by Reverend Andrea Avazian to continue a conversation that we've been having now on the show for a number of weeks about this life and the next. First, Dan, I'd like to get your impression about what Congressman McGovern had to say with regard to, in particular, with regard to Trump. And, well, here we are. Time for a minute of insights from Dan Torres. What say say you, Dan?
7: Um, He sounds uh, a bit despondent, if if I'm being honest with you. He sounds uh, frightened, scared, uncertain of the future. I mean, it feels like it's trying times, uh, Bill, if I'm honest with you. Um, You know, I remember hearing an interview he did um, with Monty Belmonte, used to be in the seat here with me that uh, he did with uh, Jim McGovern the week prior to the 2020 election. And I remember hearing a very similar tone in McGovern's voice uh, that I just heard right now. He feels like the government is not dealing with its problems. Um, We have many of them. And when you can't govern and you're constantly in these feuds, uh, the country begins to uh, wither away, slow down, and it's uh, kind of troubling, and, and and I will add one more thing, I think a lot of listeners feel powerless in this moment, and, and that concerns me even more people don't feel like, and I'm glad you asked him what can people do, and I feel like not enough people realize how serious this crisis would be even if he just wins the nomination and claims fraud who knows what would happen in 2024 and I mean he as Trump, but What happens if he wins? I mean, he's not down in the polls, like you said. So could this be another 2016 moment? Well, two points
1: in response to what you just said, Dan. One is that what Trump supporters have, that Biden supporters do not at this point, and Congressman McGovern alluded to this, is enormous enthusiasm for their candidate because Trump people are 125% behind him all the way with, we love this guy. He's got to be our president, our dictator, our grand fuhrer. I I mean, we're talking about someone who has fascism in his DNA at this point. Mentality. And that is really frightening. And his supporters... They can't wait for him to be president and go out and vote for him and give him money and do everything possible. And when you have enthusiasm like that versus, uh, you know, we, we, we like we like the president. He's done a pretty good job, but he's kind of old. I mean, the, the enthusiastic cadre has a big
0: advantage.
7: I just want to quickly add a uh, Josh Silver confirms everything you just said. Uh, and he knows a lot of the Democratic heavyheaders. Um, so I just want that's my one comment, but I have a question for you. Um, you were a very young lad when Nixon was president. Do you feel like the generation, I guess, uh, before you, failed failed in holding Nixon to account for what he did? And is that a direct connection to what we're experiencing today?
1: I have vacillated on this question of whether Nixon should have been prosecuted at the time, where I wasn't that young.
7: You were very young.
1: Thank you. I was outraged. How could he not be a defendant in a criminal case? Look at what Watergate was and how he directed it and how he was in charge of a racketeering enterprise. How could Nixon not be put on trial? Then uh, I became more convinced that Uh, President Ford may have done the right thing by pardoning him. I know it's a complicated situation, but in retrospect, I'm not sure that Ford made a mistake because it was in fact tearing the country apart. That said, it needs to be recognized that what Nixon did by resigning which was, I think, part of the deal with Ford, you resign, I'll pardon you, with a few, a few uh, quick uh, uh, shrugs of shoulders and winks to each other. That said, oh, and by the way, local author Barry Worth wrote an incredibly insightful and important book about this called 30 Days, the 30 Days Between uh, the Resignation of Nixon and the Pardon by Ford. Um, it did kind of allow the country to heal itself uh,
7: so then when Republicans say that they would be pardoning Trump for whatever crimes he may have done, which they believe he hasn't done, would that also heal the nation? No, I don't think What's so. What's the difference
1: I then? I, I think there is a, an enormous difference because uh, Nixon, in a N- Nixon-esque way, apologized for the break-in and being part of the cover-up of the break-in at the Democratic National Headquarters. It was dirty tricks. It was dirty dick at his worst, to be sure, but it it was not unheard of. He apologized. He said this was wrong. He did that in a television interview uh, with David Frost, right? Mm -hmm. Famous movie, too. Trump says... Exactly the opposite. He says, This is great what I've done. Being a criminal is that's what I'm about. And that's what this country is about. And this country is about making me the great leader of what was a former democracy. Trump doesn't apologize. Trump defends Trump and says, I'm great. I've done nothing wrong.
7: And the scariest part is the voters reward that behavior. That's what frightens me the most. We'll be right back.
4: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
8: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. More details are coming to light in regard to the discrimination lawsuit filed against Amherst-Pelham Regional School District, Superintendent Michael Morris, and former Acting Superintendent Douglas Slaughter. Doreen Cunningham, the assistant superintendent at Amherst Regional, who was put on leave, alleges she was treated differently than others placed on leave and called the investigation into gender-based discrimination on the part of the middle school guidance counselors a charade. Cunningham is seeking payments for damages, emotional distress, and back pay. The East Hampton City Council did not override the mayor's veto on a reproductive and gender-affirming care ordinance at last night's public hearing. Mayor Nicola Chappelle previously explained her decision.
9: I don't feel that writing a local ordinance that basically is the, the same as a state ordinance is a good use of municipal time or municipal employees.
8: Overriding the mayor's veto requires two-thirds of the council or six yes votes, and only five councilors voted yes. Today marks 100 years since Northampton's Calvin Coolidge rose to the presidency. Coolidge was sworn in as the 30th president of the United States following President Warren G. Harding's death. Some 20,000 people filled downtown Northampton and paraded the nominee all the way to Smith College and Allen Field, according to the Gazette. Coolidge later remarked, we need more of the office desk and less of the show window in politics.
10: Mixture of sun and clouds today. Watch out for a scattered shower this afternoon, a high of 78 to 82. Mostly cloudy tonight. Evening temperatures in the 70s with scattered showers, an overnight low of 58 to 64. It's mostly cloudy tomorrow. Showers and thunderstorms throughout the day. Could be some street flooding with heavy downpours, a high of 76 to 80 or dry over the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP.
3: Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, corporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass.
7: Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop.
6: Saga Communications of New England is looking for an IT administrator to work in a fast-paced and challenging work environment. This position requires a strong self-starter with the ability to quickly learn new processes. You're a team player that can take ownership of local IT operations and contribute to a team of IT engineers. You must possess the ability to juggle and prioritize work while supporting numerous employees in three locations in Western Mass. There will be regular travel to Springfield, Northampton, and Greenfield. Flexibility is the key to success. The ideal candidate will be somebody who has an interest in the broadcast radio industry and knowledge of lan and wan support you should understand windows active directory networks router and firewall functions and have experience with desktop support of office 365 and utilizing a help desk environment supporting users in multiple locations and yes you'll receive great benefits please send your cover letter and resume to itjobs at springfieldrocks.com saga communications of new england is an equal opportunity employer
1: And this is our Have Faith segment with the Reverend Andrea Avazian, who is a member of the senior leadership team at Alden Baptist Church. Reverend, I appreciate your being with us today for our Have Faith segment, uh, in particular because I want to conver- continue the conversation we've been having with uh, your colleagues here on our show, a conversation that started with the Reverend Carol Bull, uh, who had been before she became the pastor at the United Church of Ware, had been the chaplain at Cooley Dickinson Hospital, and we just kind of spontaneously got into this conversation about what it's like to be with people who are near the end of their life? What's it like to provide pastoral counseling for them and for their families? And what do you say? And what do you really believe comes next? We're going to ask you those questions in just a minute. I want to first ask you about the Sojourner Truth School for Social Change Leadership. You're the founder of it. And I know that the fall catalog for this year has just come out, and I'd appreciate you taking a minute and sharing what's in that catalog and what is available at the Sojourner Truth School for Social Change Leadership, which we owe to your tenacity and vision. Reverend?
11: Thank you so much, and it's nice to be here, Dan. It's nice to be here, Bill. Thank you so much, and I appreciate that we're beginning with the Sojourner Truth School for Social Change Leadership because, the catalog for fall 2023 is just out. It's literally hot off the press, and I have brought some in for everyone here at the station. The catalog is different this fall, and we're very excited about that. We really we've um, existed for six and a, six and a half years, and we really heard our thousands of class participants say we want to go deeper. We don't just want standalone classes, although the workshops that are standalone are terrific and taught by experts. We want to go deeper. So the new catalog for the fall is a new model. There are five going deeper classes, which meet four or five times, and you sign up for the whole series, and there are 10 standalone classes. So it's a new model, and we're going to see how it works. We will be evaluating it in December when the classes are over, but uh, all of you who have taken True School classes, we heard you, and we made a change.
1: You talk about the classes, and it is called the Sojourner Truth School, so Take another minute and explain what the classes do, who are the teachers, how are they recruited, and what is the goal?
11: Wonderful. Thank you so much. The classes are free movement-building classes, all held online. You sign up online on our website. And what they do is they develop uh, skills, leadership training, and allow people to... uh, deepen their activist skills, or be introduced to organizing and activism. The classes are all taught by experts in their field, and they're all taught by people of color or by racial pairs. We do not have any classes taught by a single, um, a white person or a team of white people, so they are all taught by people of color. And, um... Our goal and our mission is to strengthen social change movements that are uh, making change on social, political, and economic issues. The classes are about 90 minutes or two hours. Let me stress again, they are all free. That is our commitment that we are running a free school in the spirit of the free schools in California in the 60s, and people sign up online, then they get the link, and then they share it's quite a remarkable, quite a successful, still scrappy, pretty fabulous endeavor.
1: And the catalog, of course, just inspiring in and of itself. And the titles of, of, the, of the classes include Reproductive Justice post Row with Carrie Baker, who will uh, be teaching that course, uh, Activism for Introverts and Highly Sensitive People. I I don't think I'll sign up for that, but I I think that's really good. Hey, if you don't like being out there uh, giving speeches, how do you participate in the movement? That class
11: is fabulous, Bill, and it fills... And did you see on the next page, if you look on the catalog, the next page, calling in the call out culture with Loretta Ross, the MacArthur Foundation genius winner. We have Loretta.
1: And she is she's an amazing teacher.
11: Amazing. I'm taking that class again and I've taken it already.
1: She, she is extraordinary, and I love the other course titles, Political Organizing, Concrete Guidance on Working for Candidates and Working on Campaigns, yes. Movement Building in the Arts. It, it goes on and on, and the other, the other in-depth classes are equally inspiring both in terms of who the leaders and teachers are and what the course content is.
11: Let uh, me say that we opened registration for the fall classes on August 1st, at midnight on August 1st, the registration opened, and by dinnertime on August 1st, one of the series classes had filled and has a waiting list, and that class is called the Stolen Beam Series, a study of reparations for descendants of African slaves in the U.S. It's taught by Andrea Battle and Jeffrey Gold. It is a remarkable series. It filled in the first day.
1: Well, we thank you for creating and founding the Sojourner Truth School for Social Change Leadership. And again, if people want to sign up, where do they go?
11: They go to our website. They can go there now, www.truthschool.org, and they will see all the classes. Sign up is easy and quick. The classes are free.
1: And the classes start?
11: Uh, In September, right after Labor Day.
1: So, Reverend Andrea Vazian, I want to take you back to the conversation that we started, that we had with the Reverend Carol Bull about... Pastoral counseling. What do you say? What do you do when you're at the bedside of someone who is dying? What do you tell them and why?
11: Often the pastoral care begins long before you're at the bedside because people will call you and say, mom is declining or dad is in trouble or we're near the end. And then you start visiting and you start holding hands and you do a lot of listening What do you believe? How are you doing? How are you feeling? When they ask me what I believe, I tell them that I believe there is a soul that will rise at the moment of death. I'm a former registered nurse, and I know I've been at the bedside both as a nurse and as a pastor when people were transitioning, passing on, and I know literally, medically, at the moment of death, the body loses weight. The body actually grows lighter at the moment of death, and I believe that the soul rises and joins what I would call the du- the Godhead, or the energy, the divine energy that surrounds us all and surrounds this planet. What do I do when I am actually there and people are transitioning, and I've been there many times as a nurse and as a pastor? I really listen and try and take an assessment of what's happening in the room and Sometimes I'm very quiet, and we just gather around the bed, take hands, and pray, but sometimes I intervene a little more. Let me give you two quick examples. One is um, I entered a uh, room of someone dying in my former um, church when I was the pastor of the Haydenville Congregational Church. I went down to Bay State, and they called me, and they said, Grandpa, Al is dying. Come, and I went down, and when I walked in The large family was glued against the walls of the room, and everybody was talking in hushed tones, and Al was clearly in his final day, if not final hours, and everybody was whispering and far from the bed, and I said to them, you don't need to whisper and you don't need to be far from the bed, climb up on that bed and hold Al, and talk right in his two ears, because hearing is the last sense to go, and tell Al you love him, and tell Al that you're going to be all right, and he can let go, because you are safe, because you are all together, because, so we just changed the energy in the room, and people clamored on the bed, and then people said, I'm gonna cry, and I said, good, you can cry, Al can know you're crying. Another quick story is I entered a room at Cooley Dickinson Hospital, and the opposite thing was happening which was two daughters had flown in from far away too coolly and their father mark was dying and they were talking to him as if he was not dying dad you're going to be all right we're going to take you to san diego and you're going to move into beth's sunroom you're going and it was completely i knew immediately that mark was dying and that this was they were not preparing him or themselves and i basically said to them your father is passing on and there's a room in Cooley called the comfort room. And you can take him there where there's no machinery, no computers, no noise. We it's can kind put him in, in hospital hospice. In, in a hospital hospice, exactly right, Bill. And we can put his quilt on his bed, and people can visit him, and you can talk to him, and you can stay with him there. But we need to start letting Mark go, and we need to start preparing you. For the fact that Mark is leaving. So I do different things at the bedside to spend depending on what's happening.
1: We are speaking with the Reverend Andrea Vazian. We're going to continue this conversation right after this short break. And I'm going to ask Reverend Andrea Vazian, what do you mean by the soul and its rising? We'll be right back.
11: But OK.
4: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg find local news and local talk for the Valley.
11: It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support
12: schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors.
4: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives, 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts.
6: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New
1: England and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad.
8: fort hill collision services will love it too so for the european touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle trust the experts at fort hill collision services
5: route 9 in amherst
8: the paul parent garden club every sunday 6 to 8 a.m brought to you by winesick nursery locally owned and operated since 1954 visit mike Amity, john and the rest of the team at winesick nursery route 9 in hadley and online at winesicknursery.com
4: A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 101.5, 1400, WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
1: We continue our conversation with Reverend Andrea Vazian who is a member of the senior leadership pastoral team at Alden Baptist Church. We are talking about this life and the next. And you mentioned in our initial segment today, uh, Reverend Avazian, that you think a soul leaves the body at the time of death and then merges. I'm a little unclear as to what you believe happens then, but I would appreciate your sharing with us what you mean by our having a soul, and our soul, I take it, ascending or joining with something else. Tell us more about that and your beliefs.
11: I'm going to refer back to my years as a member of the Religious Society of Friends or the Quakers. I was a member of the... um, Quakers um, worshiping in Leverett at Mount Toby Friends for many years before I went to divinity school and became an ordained pastor. I would have been ordained in the Quakers, except Quakers in New England do not ordain pastors. So I made the move over to the United Church of Christ and went to div school. The Quakers believe that at birth, every person has the spark of God, or an ember of God, or the essence of God within them. And I believe that's the soul I believe there is the spark of God or divine energy within us, and it is our essential and best self. It is our goodness and our integrity, our love of justice, our love, our deep love for others and for the planet. It is our sense of compassion and our works of generosity. That's our best self, and that is the energy within us. And at death, the body is discarded. It is no longer useful. No matter how old or young that person is, that body is discarded and left. And this energy, this vibrating energy, rises to what I believe is join the Godhead, which I would say is a sea or an ocean or waves of positive and only positive loving energy in the world. I think one of the great disservices that has happened to religion and spirituality is that God has been made a figure, mainly a white male. And that has really deeply limited our, our experience of God, because so many people cannot relate to a white male figurehead. And it has also made God so small that I believe God is not a white male figure. I believe God is not a, a male or a figure. I believe there is an energy that is a pulsating energy in the cosmos that is only goodness, that is only loving, that is only compassionate, and that our souls join that flood, those waves of energy. And I have felt it at the bedside. I have felt it, which is why so many people, when they are present, when someone dies, I don't know if you two have been present when someone dies, but people will say, I felt it. I felt the wave over me. I felt the deep religious experience. I was changed by being here. And it's because the soul of the person who died just washed over them.
1: Does the belief or belief system of the person who's dying play a role in your judgment as to what happens, this uh, leaving of the body, the soul's leaving of the body? Or has that happened to everyone regardless of their religious beliefs or lack thereof. What's your lack thereof? What's your, what's your sense of that?
11: I believe it happens for everyone. I believe that faith is a very, religious experience is a very large mountain, a very large mountain, and there are many trails to the top. So that I make no distinction in religious experiences or faith, no hierarchy among Muslims and Jews, Baha'is, pagan Wiccans, Christians, Catholics, Protestants, Hindus, I make no distinction. These are all different ways of knowing divine energy. So it's an enormous mountain with many roads to the top. I will say that years ago, there was a very popular book written by a family, a young boy And his family wrote a book called Heaven is for Real. You may have remembered this. And the boy, the young boy, had had a near-death experience. He had been in a horrible accident and had a near-death experience. When he came back, he told his family about what he saw. I was a pastor at the Haydenville Congregational Church, and I thought, I'm going to read this book and preach on it. I read the book and was appalled because the family took what the boy said and made it into a book. And everyone in heaven, and there was an actual heaven... Everyone in heaven was white and able-bodied and walking around heaven with wings. I mean, it was so Disney and it was so painful to read. I mean, and I thought to myself, where are the people of color? Where are the people with disabilities? Where are the gay people who are cuddling on the, on the heavenly street corner? So I think we have a lot of damage that has been done in our vision of God and heaven and hell because of our limited understanding of the divine and of divine energy. And
1: so you see heaven as a not... Why don't you just describe it? Describe it for me. I I know I'm asking you a a two-hour question in a 30-second space, but...
11: I think heaven and hell are real, and I think they're here. I think we have moments of heaven with our grandchildren, with your trip that you just had with your grandchild in France, with my granddaughter every Tuesday on Columbus Avenue in Northampton. I think hell is real. I think people are living through it in Ukraine. I think people are living through it because of climate change. I think heaven and hell are real, and I think they're here.
1: We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Reverend Andrea Vazian. This is our Have Faith segment. Thanks so much for your insights and your time. Really appreciate
11: it. Thank you so much for inviting me.
9: WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply.
8: Are you or someone you know addicted to drugs? Narcotics Anonymous can help. NA has been helping addicts since 1953. We are recovering addicts who meet regularly to help each other stay clean. We offer meetings and services online and in person. To find one of our meetings or to get information on what services are offered, visit www westernmassna.org or call us at 1 NA Help You. That's 1 624 3578. WHMP
10: North W-H-M-P. WHMP.
4: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
1: This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is off today, and this is a very special segment that we have weekly with Brian Adams, who is Professor Emeritus of uh, Environmental Studies at Greenfield Community College, a longtime teacher there, and author of three novels with environmental themes. And this is his time as our segment host for Science and Sensibility. Brian Adams brings with him and has with him today two really important special guests who you want to hear Brian Adams, the microphone is yours.
13: Thank you, Bill. Um, we're going to start off with the first law of holes. or The law, the of, law of what? The first law of holes, H-O-L-E-S. I'm sure you've heard it, um, but essentially it states... I
1: missed that course in law school.
13: How could I have missed it? If you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Uh, I don't know if there's a second law of holes, but that's, <laughs> that's the first one. It is, of course, a metaphor... Um, And for today's show, we're going to use it as a metaphor for climate change. If you find yourself in a hole, stop digging, and we are in a hole. July, I believe, is the hottest July ever recorded on record. We've been declared a federal disaster area here because of the rains. It doesn't rain normal anymore. It just rains crazy. And these extreme weather events, the fires to the north of us, the fires to the west of us, um, really, are signifying that climate change is not something in the future. It is something that is happening now. And one of the really crazy things about this hole that we've dug ourselves into is that there's incredible amount of money to be made in digging that hole. And today, and that's sort of li- literally and figuratively. We, we, you know, we dig coal, we frack gas, we drill for oil. The record profits that oil companies made last year are just astounding, um, digging that hole costs a lot of money, and someone has to finance it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, My guests are Eric Broadbent. Eric is a retired software engineer and climate activist, and Russ Vernon-Jones. Russ has been on the show before. He's a retired elementary school teacher and principal and also climate activist. Thank you, Eric and Russ, for being with us today. Um, And we're going to start with the old Silverscape building in Northampton. Folks know that. It's sort of an iconic, beautiful structure right there in the center of town. And uh, a lot of us have sort of been, oh, you know, these vacant Northampton buildings, businesses, when is someone going to come in? Silverscape was sold. I was like, yay, Silverscape is sold. But it's sold to a bank. And in this case, the bank is Chase Bank. And there are problems with Chase Bank, and let's begin that discussion. Um, Russ, uh, tell us what it is about Chase that has a lot of people upset, and what Chase has to do with digging this hole that we're in.
0: Thank you, Brian. Uh, Chase Bank is the worst bank in the world uh, in terms of the climate crisis. Chase Bank has done more to finance the fossil fuel industry and finance new gas and oil extraction uh, than any other bank in the world. Uh, So as they've come into Northampton, uh, our message to folks in this area is don't bank at Chase. Uh, And we really think that most folks in this area, if they understand the negative role that Chase Bank is playing in financing the climate crisis, uh, they'd rather have their money somewhere else.
13: Let's talk about um, Chase's response to that. Uh, Chase says, "All right, yeah, we're financing um, uh, fossil fuel infrastructure projects that will transition us into the green economy." And Chase is saying, "We put, I think, 170 billion in green incentives the last two years. They've targeted another 800 billion by 2030." Um, so they're I'm playing devil's advocate here. Their response is, "Yeah, we're following. We're we're still." transitioning us into a low or no carbon future. But look at the amount. It's close to a trillion dollars that we're putting in in a decade into green incentives and green business.
0: Well, we have a word for that these days, greenwashing. Chase Bank has a publicity campaign, just as the fossil fuel companies have had a publicity campaign to try to persuade the public that what they're doing is fine. What they're doing is tremendously harmful. And I like to quote uh, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the UN, who said the fossil fuel companies and the banks that finance them have humanity by the throat. He called the banks accomplices in creating the climate disaster and insisted that they, quote, must not escape responsibility. The um, International Energy Agency which is a fairly conservative, reputable international group, has said the world does not need any more new gas or oil wells or coal mines to meet its energy needs. We must stop all expansion of fossil fuels and begin a complete transition immediately. And they say there's plenty of fossil fuel in the wells and mines that are already open, uh, and we must not open any new ones.
13: Last Tuesday, I believe, was the first day that Chase opened their bank in downtown uh, Northampton, and they were greeted not just by clients coming in, but also by folks from Climate Action Now and other organizations um, concerned about Chase's role in, in, in climate chaos. Can you talk about what happened last week? Was that a successful um, demonstration. Uh, there was a big one in May of this last year as well. Can you talk about how that went and the importance of, of these kinds of events?
0: Yeah, Tuesday morning was Chase Bank's grand opening of their local branch, uh, and we only had a couple of days to organize, and we had 50 protesters show up, um, all sharing the message, don't bank at Chase. And we had far more protesters. I was there all morning. We had far more protesters than they had customers. Dan, you have a question?
7: I do. I have the hard question here that I've been wanting to ask activists. I hear a lot about this crisis and how urgent it is. We talk about the patterns, how basically this year is going to probably be the hottest year on record. and, And now it's been, what, the hottest 10 years in the last, I don't know, 10 years have probably been the hottest on record Um, What role do you think uh, nuclear power should play in this, given that it's one technology that we have control of, could produce a large amount of energy without the CO2s, but it is nuclear power?
0: Russ, you want to continue with that? Sure. Uh, It's a tough question. And I think responsible people on all sides of this issue disagree about it. Um, the current nuclear technology is not only dangerous and leaves horrible, dangerous waste, but also is incredibly expensive to build and takes the timeline for building a new nuclear plant along the lines of the plants we have now is so long that it can't be that useful in dealing with the crisis immediately. Whether there's some nuclear technology down the road that would be cheaper, more quickly constructed, I don't know, but we don't have it yet. On the other hand, the nuclear plants that are currently functioning uh, are enabling us to have fewer emissions uh, than if all of that electricity had to be made from from coal, oil, or gas. So it's, you know, the movement kind of divides about whether we need to keep the the current nuclear plants operating.
7: and if I'm just to make quickly, I'd, we don't know what to do with the waste. And so that is a big uh, debate that happens is the nuclear uh, waste that comes from producing this process is somehow put in the Sierra Nevada mountains, right, in Nevada. And that becomes a tricky issue that nobody wants to live near there or the fear that it may contaminate the water um, that people live in. So it's, I'm not, I wasn't trying to ask this question because I think it's a solution. But if I hear that it is this urgent crisis and it exists... Yeah, and so it's I think a it's fascinating important.
13: issue. What role, if any, does nuclear power have? I mean, it certainly does now with 100 operating plants that are out there. But, Dan, you bring up the nuclear waste issues. Um, plutonium is one of the byproducts of nuclear production. I think the half-life of plutonium, is 24,000 years. That means in 24,000 years, it will be half as radioactive as it is now, and that means it has to be stored for a long time, and we have no methods to do that. But let's get back to banking, Um where there is a no to Chase, there can be a yes to other banks. Uh, Eric Broadbent, can you talk about the role of local banks and what people can do who are dissatisfied with having their money in a bank like Chase, which is financing the fossil f- fuel crisis? Yeah, well,
14: thank you, Brian. Um, a- as you said, if we're going to say no to something, we also need to say yes to something else. Um Ch- it not only uh, uh, Russ talked about how how much money is involved. Chase makes a lot of money. Uh, their profits uh, have gone over forty billion to forty eight billion in twenty one. Um, they are flush. Uh, and how do they make that money? Well, of course, it some of it comes from their from their loans that they are making to these industries, uh, which are themselves very profitable. Um, but I was surprised to learn that a lot of it comes from local deposit from deposit accounts Um, and uh, apparently that's a huge share of their revenue 40% of their revenue uh, and 30% of net income in in, in 2021 Um, and what are they doing with this well that you've seen the ad campaigns uh, cash back and and so on they are aggressively opening new uh, branches especially in New England one opened in Springfield recently Uh, there was a protest there uh, and we were so <laughs> glad to have the opportunity to show our strength in Northampton when the, when the bank branch opened. Um, so they have deep pockets, and um, they're they're moving into towns. And we think that uh, there are some great alternatives locally. Um, the the profits that Chase makes they don't stay in Northampton. Uh, they they may get invested in some local businesses, but. We have a lot of banks here uh, that are really great about supporting the community. We have a, a list, I'm not sure we can give our email a, a address out, um, stop30banks at gmail.com and we can send you uh, a resource list w- which includes some local banks. Some, uh, some, So I can go on about that, but I also wanted to talk about uh, some recent examples of benevolence and uh, of, of the local banks have, have really made some major contributions recently to our local economy. Uh,
13: Bill, you have a question?
1: I, I do, and and we have many amazing local banks, Greenfield Savings Banks, Florence Bank, uh, right. and, the, and the list goes on, five college credit Union. I mean, there are tremendous local financial institutions that, that invest not only significantly, but primarily here in our local economy. That said, what I'd like to know from both of you is why target JPMorgan Chase? Uh, TD Bank is just as bad and almost as big, it seems to me. Um Bank of America branch in Amherst has been picketed and boycotted and uh, protested against for years. Why, why take on Chase? Why, why are they the, the, uh, the worst of the actors?
0: Russ, you want to help us out with that? Sure. Uh, our opposition is not limited to Chase. Absolutely. We think people should get their money and their credit cards out of all the big banks. And you know this is sort of a special opportunity for those of us in the United States because the uh, five, the four biggest banks in the world uh, financing fossil fuels are all U.S. companies: uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citibank, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America. And not far down the list, as Bill said, is TD Bank, uh, and they're especially objectionable because of their financing. Uh, of the pipelines through indigenous uh, areas in the Dakotas.
13: Um, We're going to take a break. We're talking with Russ Vernon-Jones and Eric Broadbent. They are activists with Climate Action Now and really encouraging listeners to look at how they (coughs) bank and what we can do locally with our money uh, that has major implications, and one of those is to support our vibrant, exciting local banks that invest in our community, rather than some of these megabanks that are investing in fossil fuel chaos. So stick with us. We'll be right back.
0: I'm feeling the cracks that ran through the door and kept my mind from one.
4: Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley.
8: If we didn't, go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at $80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students.
4: Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts.
5: Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not, Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton.
9: Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition, are they? I'm Francis Rayum, The Money Doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money, financial coaching coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com.
4: You're listening to "Talk the Talk" with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
1: We continue our science and sensibility segment with one Brian Adams, GCC Professor Emeritus, who has with him and us today two very special guests talking about a really important local subject: how
13: we can help save our Earth. Brian Adams. Um. And, and I think there's a lot of despair out there, particularly when it comes to climate action stuff. What can I do? I'm one person. Uh, I don't make a difference. But we really can make a difference. Uh, Eric Broadbent, uh, climate activist, you want to talk about, again, this, this sort of one thing that people can do to, 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 to make a change, and that's to bank locally. Yeah, thank you.
14: Uh, I'm looking across the desk here at a head, recent headline about flooding and the farmers uh, needing some support and guess what, Florence Bank uh, 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 gave $50,000 to Grow Food Northampton recently uh, to help bolster their abilities to provide healthy local food to area residents, especially those who are food insecure. And we're gonna talk a little bit about climate justice in a minute. But, um, and then People's Bank, uh, for the second year in a row, People's Bank set a record for donations to uh, local civic and charitable causes uh, 2.3 million dollars in 2022 um, and these are just some examples uh the the CEO of people's Bank says supporting the community is essentially what we're set up to do they are a mutual bank and there's some wonderful examples of mutual banks in New England that support local food um, so it it makes sense to you know m- take your money from doing digging the hole as you set us up and uh, let's start filling it in with with good stuff so
13: and, and and we were talking at break how what a pain it is to change banks cuz people have direct deposits and this and that but you know it's really worth it our local banks are doing doing great stuff and 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 the big banks aren't um Russ you want to talk about this connection with big banking and climate justice or in some cases climate injustice
0: well the whole climate crisis is set up so that the worst burden Uh, both in the United States and worldwide, uh, is falling on communities of people of color and indigenous communities. Uh, And so every action that makes the climate crisis worse, every expansion and continuation of fossil fuels, in a sense has a racist impact because the burden is borne disproportionately uh, by people of color. Now, Chase also has some Other problems, they recently had to settle a suit with their employees uh, because of uh, racial discrimination. They're a funder of the racist Cop City Project in Atlanta, where they're uh, building a center to train police from all over the country in military procedures. Um, So Chase has its own distinct problems. But Chase's involvement in funding fossil fuels impacts people of color. Uh, worldwide as well as in the United States. And part of this, what, one of the things this means is if we want to do something about systemic racism, one of the things we can do is move money away from uh, a bank like Chase that continues to fund it.
13: Um, talking about climate justice in communities of color, Springfield is the asthma capital of, I think, the state, Uh, And there is plans for a natural gas pipeline to be going through Springfield. Both of you are activists with Climate Action Now. Do you want to talk a little bit about what's going on in, in Springfield in opposition to this pipeline? Eric?
14: Well, uh, Climate Action now really has taken a leadership position in establishing a relationship, a war, uh, an ongoing relationship with the activists in Springfield from the Springfield Climate Justice Coalition. And they've actually, uh, the folks from that group have come up here in, in May for, for our um, rally uh, in support of, of this effort to have people move their money out of chase. Um, and uh, we've, uh, many of us have been down into in Springfield to help. Gather and 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 protest and raise the issue. There, um, it's really about establishing those relationships uh, with c- communities of color that are impacted and 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 being in service to them. How can we help uh, do this? Uh, and and the the effort has been successful, uh, as far as we know. There's been an initial uh, stay of the pipeline, um, and mm-hmm. maybe Russ can talk a little bit more about that.
13: Russ,
0: well, we. Working with other organizations across the state, we got 6,000 signatures on a petition that really calls to put gas in the past. Uh, And partly as a result of that coordinated effort, uh, one of the state offices said Eversource has not done what it needs to do in terms of environmental impact statement. So it slowed down uh, Eversource's attempt to build one more unnecessary fossil fuel pipeline.
13: Um, let's get back to some of the profits that companies uh, are making out of this. And it really drives me crazy. Last year, 2022, was a was a record year for oil company profits. You look at uh, Exxon, Shell, Chevron, BP. They're not borrowing money from Chase, I don't think, because they have so much money. You know, meanwhile, uh, people, particularly low-income people, are just struggling to make ends meet with incredibly high uh, um, bills at the pump, and uh, when they're paying their electric bills, and, you know, this is a huge question, but where there's money to be made, uh, these companies are going to make it, and and what constraints can we, or restraints, can we put on these companies to draw them back from financing climate chaos when there's so much money to be made? I mean, I know this is a huge question, but... Uh, why don't you want to tackle this, Eric?
14: Well, um, it's a good question. Uh, the 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 um, recent uh, passage of the of the invest, uh, in IRA, the the inflation, inflation Re- reduction act, uh, brings a lot of opportunity and, and the potential for new jobs in in uh, this country for creating our own sources of energy. Um, and there are there are projects uh, uh, being staged right now uh, to really move us battery production here and wind production facilities, training, and so there's an opportunity um, to to really help finance that. And if there's money to be made, great. But it's we got to do it with uh, respons- responsibly.
13: For and sure. it's a it's a really important point you're making, Eric. There's money to be made in clean energy, and these are local jobs. Um, no one can put up photovoltaic panels on roof other than local, local folks. So it's really exciting to think that there's, there's huge money out there as well. Um, Russ?
0: Well, I would say the real problem is that we have not yet built a climate movement powerful enough to really shift the political situation. You know, we don't have to make it legal to continue to take oil and gas out of the ground if it's going to destroy the climate, not only locally, but for the whole world. And we don't have to continue to let the very wealthy, who have plenty of money to finance all of the climate action that we need, to hold on to a disproportionate share of wealth. So we need to build a powerful enough movement that we can restrict the mining of fossil fuels and we can take money from the ultra-rich and use it to do all the things that we need to do to stop the climate crisis.
13: Uh, Russ Vernon-Jones and Eric Broadbent, two activists with Climate Action Now. We're just about out of time. For folks who are more interested in this or want to get involved and build this climate movement, um, what do they do? How, how do they contact the two of you or Climate Action Now?
14: Well, you can go to the Climate Action Now website. Uh, just if you want to search on what, uh, Climate Action Now, Western Mass, you'll you'll find it. Um, And if you want to email us uh, at stopdirtybanks at gmail.com, we will send you a resource list and connect you for sure.
1: Before we run, could I ask one question I'm just dying to ask both of you? Is part of the program, part of the policy direction of Climate Action Now to have the oil companies leave the oil in the ground, leave the gas where it is, is that a significant part
13: of this
0: Absolutely, yes. It's an essential part of the solution.
13: We've been talking with Russ Vernon Jones and Eric Broadbent. They are two activists with Climate Action now, uh, talking about local banking, the importance of moving your money out of some of these big banks like Chase uh, that finance fossil fuels to local banking. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us thank today. You. And thank
1: you, Brian Adams. It's wonderful, wonderful segment that you do with us
13: every week it's very
1: special, it's very important and it couldn't be more timely we'll be right back
11: right before they fall what can we do red sky in the morning what can we do doesn't ever seem
13: to face him, what can do? but a sailor's warning signal should
4: concern a soul. whoa, whoa. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
8: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. More details are coming to light in regard to the discrimination lawsuit filed against Amherst-Pelham Regional School District, Superintendent Michael Morris, and former Acting Superintendent Douglas Slaughter. Doreen Cunningham, the assistant superintendent at Amherst Regional, who was put on leave, alleges she was treated differently than others placed on leave and called the investigation into gender-based discrimination on the part of the middle school guidance counselors a charade. Cunningham is seeking payments for damages, emotional distress, and back pay. The East Hampton City Council did not override the mayor's veto on a reproductive and gender-affirming care ordinance at last night's public hearing. Mayor Nicola Chappelle previously explained her decision.
9: I don't feel that writing a local ordinance that basically is the, the same as a state ordinance is a good use of municipal time or municipal employees.
8: Overriding the mayor's veto requires two-thirds of the council or six yes votes, and only five councilors voted yes. Today marks 100 years since Northampton's Calvin Coolidge rose to the presidency. Coolidge was sworn in as the 30th president of the United States following President Warren G. Harding's death. Some 20,000 people filled downtown Northampton and paraded the nominee all the way to Smith College and Allen Field, according to the Gazette. Coolidge later remarked, we need more of the office desk and less of the show window in politics.
10: Mixture of sun and clouds today. Watch out for a scattered shower this afternoon, a high of 78 to 82. Mostly cloudy tonight. Evening temperatures in the 70s with scattered showers, an overnight low of 58 to 64. It's mostly cloudy tomorrow. Showers and thunderstorms throughout the day. Could be some street flooding with heavy downpours, a high of 76 to 80 or dry over the weekend. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP.
4: Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to three Eastern time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to three Eastern time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program. WHMP.
9: you know
3: what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Bread Euphoria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full-value gift certificates, and you save 30%. At the Northampton Williamsburg line, there's something in the air. That sourdough crust pizza. Those croissants. Smell that bread. The baguettes. That New York rye. It's euphoria. Bread euphoria.
6: Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at WHMP.com.
12: Buy a mattress online? There are at least 100 websites that'll ship you a mattress rolled up like a burrito and stuffed in a box. Wait a minute. You and your mattress will spend seven or eight intimate hours together every night for years. Don't you need more than an online video and some questionable reviews to know what it actually feels like? At Talon Furniture, we mostly sell therapeutic mattresses, not temperpedic. don't wanna mislead you, therapeutic. Made in Brockton by fellow Red Sox fans. you like eating local, try sleeping local. Therapeutic mattresses are clean. No toxic off-gassing. Come to Talon and lay down on a therapeutic. See what it feels like. You can have all the time you need. And we don't roll it up like a burrito, stuff it in a box and cram it in your car. You won't have to wrestle it through the kitchen or up the stairs, we actually deliver your new mattress and set it up. Talon Furniture, a real store just down the hill from Amherst College.
1: Welcome to our segment, All That Jazz, with our segment host, Sometimes called a correspondent, although I've never quite understood that, because if you're a correspondent, you couldn't be really here in the studio, or as they say on television, (laughs) live in the studio, our correspondent never makes much sense. But Glenn Siegel is the host of this part of our show, Talk the Talk. All That Jazz. Glenn Siegel is, of course, a jazz hero in the Valley of, and he was, in fact, a jazz hero uh, nominated and elected by the Jazz Journalist Association some years ago. He's a member of the Board of Directors of Valley Jazz Shares and is one of the movers and shakers of the music scene here in the Valley. Glenn brings with him and to us every every other week on All That Jazz a very special guest, including someone in the studio with us today jazz musician from Amherst. Glenn Siegel, the microphone is yours.
15: Thank you, Bill, and uh, welcome. Uh, My guest is Aaron Schrag, who plays both Dragon Mouth Trumpet and Shakuhachi and has served on the board of the Festival of New Trumpet Music. He studied North Indian vocal music and is a music therapist. He lives in Amherst with his wife, clarinetist and UMass Associate Professor Romy de Guise-Langois, and their young daughter Rose. Welcome. Oh,
16: thank you. Yes, my son Ailey, and our new daughter Rose. Thank oh, okay. You got I, two I, now. I, oh,
15: okay. Wow, that's twice as much fun. Could, yeah,
16: exactly. Thank you, you go, for having me. Could you go
1: back to one thing sure. that, you, that Glenn just mentioned, which is the name of the instrument? I have to. I, I confess, I cheated. I went and googled it because sure. I had never heard of it
16: until about six thirty this morning. Uh,
1: Perhaps you could tell us a bit of what that is.
16: Which uh, the shakuhachi? You mean? Yes. Mm-hmm sure so yeah the shakohachi is the japanese bamboo flute and um it's an ancient instrument and like a lot of things in japanese culture it sort of made its way uh through china and sort of um changed physically uh, over the years and, and when it made its way to japan um it was built differently than it was in china but variations on a bamboo flute um it's made from the root of the bamboo and um it's an instrument that's um directly associated in a part of Zen practice. So um, the Zen practice with the shakuhachi is called Suizen, which is blowing meditation. And it was played during the Edo period in Japan by monks called Komuso monks, uh, which means, I think it's monks of empty nothingness, I think if I'm translating it correctly, and they would play the shakuhachi for their Zen practice.
15: Mm. And how, in what context do you play Shakuhachi these days?
16: Sure, um, I would say the majority. I mean, I use it for my performance, um, and then I, on a daily basis, I use it in my music psychotherapy practice with my clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, with my clients, I'll usually set up uh, like a kind of a large ambient texture with the Shakuhachi and electronics, running it through Ableton Live and that'll be a period of time when the client will meditate to the music or specifically focus on um, an issue that we've talked about. Or if, you know, they're unsure of what to talk about in the session, it can be a starting point for them to find something to talk about afterwards.
1: Okay, in for a dime, in for a dollar. This may be a really dumb question, but Mm. maybe not. What possessed you to pick up an instrument called the shakuhachi and start becoming an expert at it?
16: Sure. Um... So, oh not such a bad question okay oh yeah okay I, it's <laughs> I've been asked before <laughs> but it's um, it's a good question so for me um, I've been practicing uh, Zen Buddhism for over 20 years and um, I when I moved to New York around 2003 fall 2004 I um, I was trying to find a way to bring my trumpet practice and my Zen practice as close together as possible. And so I was starting to practice my trumpet warm-ups in my seated posture that I sat uh, Zazen. And, um, you know, searching online, I uh, when I first got to New York, I found there was a concert of shakuhachi music, which was the Zen flute happening right next to the New School, where I was starting to do my uh, degree in jazz studies. And, uh, I met Ronnie Selden, who then became my teacher. And he's sort of one of the first people to bring the shakwachi over to Japan, uh, from Japan to, um, to North America. And, um, yeah, I wasn't planning on learning the instrument. I wanted to learn about the music, but I, he was kind of, uh, both an incredible and deep musician and also kind of a New York hustler. And I showed up to my first lesson and he was like, here, uh, you know, here's your flu to hear these notes and come back and learn them uh, for next week. So wow. I jumped on.
15: <laughs> and the other instrument that you specialize in is also probably unfamiliar to mm. 99.9% yes. of us, the dragon mouth trumpet. Tell us what that is and how it differs from a Regular. typical trumpet.
16: Yeah. So, um, It's basically, you know, to zoom out, the simplest explanation is that it's a um, regular valve trumpet with uh, the addition of a soprano trombone slide. And so that allows me to have access to both um, valves and a slide at the same time, uh, which facilitates bending between notes. And that was, for me, something that I, I followed my ear in studying um, North Indian classical vocals um, and the shakuhachi and trying to emulate that on the trumpet. And you can do it, um, you know, amazing innovators like John Hassel, um, Arve Hendrickson, um, you know, have done it with a regular valve instrument, but you can, if you uh, add the slide, you're able to bend between the notes without really changing much of the tone quality of the instrument. And so you get a really clean slide. And so I've, the instrument that I'm playing now is the third version of this kind of instrument that I've had built. Um, Originally, Maynard Ferguson um, first developed the first prototype of this instrument in the 70s called the Firebird. And for me, this is the the third custom instrument that was made for me. This one was made by Josh Landris, who's a trumpet maker and um, brass technician in New York.
1: You live in Amherst. Do Do you perform around here with these instruments at all?
16: Um, I have, I, I'd like to be playing more. It's, um, you know, as a new parent, it's, I'm still sort of making contacts, but I'm hoping to start like a composer series in the fall, um, with some faculty, uh, Jason Robinson at, um, Amherst college. So yes, it should be uh, out there pretty soon. Could you tell us how long you've lived in Amherst and what brought you here? Sure. Uh, another good question. So, uh, my wife is on faculty at UMass teaching clarinet and, um, You know, we started to build a house here around 2019, and then uh, around when my son was born, April 2020, which everybody remembers that time, um, this decision was sort of made for us that it made more sense to live here, um, especially because hospitals in New York at the time weren't even accepting uh, husbands to be at the birth, so we kind of made the move.
15: Mm -hmm. So you've been here for under three, three years or so? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful. So you've done work with jazz guitarist Ben Monder. You have a jazz quintet that plays the music of Tom Waits, which I'd like to ask you a little bit about. Sure. Um, And you're continuing your dragon mouth trumpet and shakuhachi solo work. Um, These are all very different musical pursuits. How do you fit all those projects together?
16: Sure. Um, I mean, they're I guess I'm kind of eclectic, but I—they're all sort of um, connected with deep parts of me emotionally. The music of Tom Waits is what I grew up listening to. Um, you know, I, I studied jazz and I, I love jazz, but there's something about Tom Waits' music that always struck me, and it, it sort of—I started listening to it when I was like under 10, and just was sort of obsessed with it. So. Uh, all of those songs became sort of like my jazz standards and there's so much influence in his music from many um, different styles, but jazz is one of them. They so they translate really well and especially with the instruments I play, um, his music actually works really well translating onto the shakuhachi in terms of getting that husky kind of bluesy sound um, with kind of an otherworldly kind of connection and then especially for the dragon mouth trumpet um, his voice, when you really just listen to it on its own, has so much subtlety and bends, and um, you know, it's great to be able to emulate that on an instrument that can do microtonal um, embellishments.
1: Mm-hmm. Aaron, could you go back to something sure. just before it gets it gets lost in the conversation here? You said something that I thought was fascinating, which is that you're a music therapist. Correct. Um, I've heard of many different kinds of therapy but music therapy, this is new to me. Could you tell us what what it is, what you do?
16: Sure. Um, So uh, my my studies in music therapy, I went through NYU, and they have a a wonderful music therapy program, probably one of the first in the country, um, been around since about 1970. And so music therapy can connect, um, you know, most concepts in um, psychotherapy. So you know, you can be coming from a more of a depth-oriented approach or, you know, they use music therapy in medical settings for recovery from surgery. In my own practice, it's most um, mostly modeled after a, a psychotherapy approach. And so, um, you know, what you could imagine in a, you know, regular psychotherapy session, we're talking about anxieties. I work with clients who are struggling with addiction, uh, trauma, and, you know, a lot of it is verbal processing, but the music can help support, get a little deeper when words kind of fail. And it can also help to create trust um, in the therapeutic relationship.
1: So is this music you play for your clients or patients or that you have them play music? Sure.
16: Yeah, it's another good question. So there's two ways to approach it, um, music in therapy or music as therapy. So I definitely do probably more music in therapy at, at this point. I worked for many years at an HIV day clinic in Harlem before I moved to Amherst. And there was a lot more interactive. I really had like a whole band set up and was playing were playing with clients where right now since the pandemic Um, majority of my clients are still online. So I'm doing music in therapy where I play the music as a supportive intervention. So the client is still connected deeply to the music, but they're, they're listening to the music. Um, I I currently have one client um, who I work with, who's in New York, where we use a um, peer to peer fast internet connection. So we can actually play in real time together. But with most of my clients, I'll use the music as a a way to create like a a meditative atmosphere for them to go a little deeper in the session.
15: Mm, Great. Our guest is Aaron Schrag, who plays uh, trumpet and shakuhachi and uh, has lived in Amherst since uh, 2020. And uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, growing up in Montreal. Sure. So you spent your first 18 years there or so?
16: Yeah, at least. Yeah. Um, what was that like? And and, from, and what brought you to the States? Sure. So, okay, well, yeah, I'll start with what brought me, um, it, you know, it was the draw of New York. Um, I started to come Wasn't down. the
1: draw of Amherst? Um, come, oh, yeah. Come on, come on, come <laughs> well, on. Well, I'm
16: in Amherst now, so maybe I <laughs> <Both>. <laughs> was drawn, drawn to New York and then drawn to Amherst afterwards. <laughs> it was the ultimate goal was to come here. Um <laughs> But, uh, yeah, as a young musician in Montreal, um, you know, New York was just a bus ride away. And um, I had friends who were starting to study down here. And so I started taking lessons and was going back and forth every uh, six weeks. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to be a dual citizen and then, you know, eventually applied to new school and did my bachelor's there. But in terms of growing up in Montreal, there's, um, you know... It's um, a uniquely beautiful city um, in many, many ways. In terms of music, um, you know, I'm starting to really circle back to some of the earliest connections I made there at junior college. I have a a gig coming up in Montreal at um, Martha Wainwright's venue, uh, URSA, which is on the plateau in Montreal with two incredible musicians. Sarah Paget plays harp and electronics and bass Koto and an old friend of mine, Robbie Kuster, uh plays drums and electronics. Um, so, you know, realizing the real value of where I came from, I think there was an openness to music there um, that I don't think I would have gotten anywhere. Even coming to New York, there was, you know, I was playing in avant-garde big bands uh, when I was like 17, uh, just as part of the CJP system in Montreal with people who are completely dedicated and open to it. And that gave me this kind of unique perception. I remember we played like even Stan Kenton's City of Glass, Like just some amazing music growing up that I, you know, I don't know if I would have been exposed to, um, you know, possibly in another city, but there was something about Montreal that made that possible.
1: This is All That Jazz with Glenn Siegel and his and our special guest, Aaron Schrag. Quick break. We'll be back in two minutes. You're going to want to hear what's coming up next.
4: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg
0: what's cooking
6: at river valley co-op here's avid eater grocery shopper and co-op member bill newman
1: ah summer in new england and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries basil and tomatoes an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables in the co-op meat department local chicken from reed farm house-made brats sausage lots of grilling ideas and in the co-op cheese department get fresh mozzarella for your
3: caprese salad River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Do you have a garden? Do you love fresh vegetables? I bet you'll love Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant where vegetables aren't a token afterthought, they're the reason you're there. Seven salads, nine vegetarian entrees, plus soups and the vegetable risotto cakes. A lot of the vegetables at Paul and Elizabeth's arrive from local farms. When vegetables arrive in Paul and Elizabeth's kitchen, they take center stage. Try the kale and sea vegetable salad. Try the tempura vegetable plate with sesame ginger dipping sauce.
6: Saga Communications of New England is looking for an IT administrator to work in a fast-paced and challenging work environment. This position requires a strong self-starter with the ability to quickly learn new processes. You're a team player that can take ownership of local IT operations and contribute to a team of IT engineers. You must possess the ability to juggle and prioritize work while supporting numerous employees in three locations in Western Mass. There will be regular travel to Springfield, Northampton, and Greenfield. Flexibility is the key to success. The ideal candidate will be somebody who has an interest in the broadcast radio industry and knowledge of LAN and WAN support. You should understand Windows Active Directory, networks, router, and firewall functions, and have experience with desktop support of Office 365 and utilizing a help desk environment supporting users in multiple locations. And yes, you'll receive great benefits. Please send your cover letter and resume to ITjobs at SpringfieldRocks.com. Saga Communications of New England is an equal opportunity employer.
4: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
1: We continue our All That Jazz segment with Glenn Siegel and our special guest, Aaron Schrag. Glenn, the microphone's yours.
15: Yes, thank you, Bill. Um, I wanted to uh, circle back. We were talking during the break about music therapy. Um, I know about art therapy and dance therapy, and... Mm-hmm. Um, how many art therapy? Uh, how many music therapists are in uh, Hampshire County? Do you know?
16: Oh, that's a good question. I um, I don't know offhand. I could. Yeah, I'm sure there are more. I know the. So um, you know, I'm because of the way my licensure works um, and the insurances that I'm in network with. I work both in um, New York State virtually as well as with local clients here. Mm-hmm. Um, so my therapy network is sort of spread out. Um, but I know there's definitely some great places for music therapy in the area, but I, I can't recall like specific names, but I remember looking them up.
1: Aaron, were you a musician who became interested in therapy, or were you a therapist who happened to, was well, say, I have this other skill set, music, and then you combine the two. So tell us a bit more about how that happened in your practice and your
16: life. Sure. Um, it I guess it happened, uh, yeah, organically in the sense that I, I was a musician first, and um and then became, you know, a Zen practitioner. and then, uh, through that, uh, was drawn to the music of the Shakohachi and North Indian vocals, both of which have that quality, that kind of therapeutic quality in in their traditions. Um, in particular, the Shakohachi, the monks, you know, played for people to sort of take on um, their suffering and to, Give them an experience of you know release and compassion through music, so um, that tradition really resonated as sort of like an ancient form of music therapy. And then, um, like you know the the funny answer is that when I was at New School, um, everyone had to take kind of like a practical science class, and as a jazz student you know, everybody took the music therapy class as opposed to, like, the economics or the statistics class. But for me, it ended up being this life-changing thing because I met this teacher who was this incredible cellist and practicing music therapy, and it was the first that I, I really heard about that those kinds of programs and that kind of work, and it really kind of clicked for me. And he was very encouraging for me to try to um, get into the NYU program, which I eventually did.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So do people come to you and say... I want music therapy, or do people come to you and say, I want therapy, and then they're somewhat surprised to find out that there's a music component part of it?
16: Um, I would say both. I mean, definitely on the profiles that I have, like on Psychology Today or Zen Care, which is where usually people find me online, um, it's clear that I'm a music therapist, um, but I also have clients where we just do talk therapy, and so it really depends on what they're looking for. It's never... um, Necessary for me to use music uh, in in sessions. It's you know there has to be enough trust to use it to begin with, and sometimes it can help get to that you know to create that trust. But some clients you know just really need to talk or to talk for a specific session. Um, so yeah, sometimes people come to me and they haven't really even thought about it, but then surprisingly, um, people with no background or no exposure to shakuhachi, and this has always been a pleasant surprise for me are really affected in a positive way from music. They've never heard any kind of strange flute with electronics or anything, but be, maybe because of the context, uh, it's really effective in in the work.
15: And uh, we're running out of time, but I just wanted to ask you briefly about Brooklyn Raga Massive. That's a group that I'm familiar with because they performed at one of my Magic Triangle concerts mm-hmm. with uh, Adam Rudolph's Go Organic Orchestra. You're involved with them. Tell us about that group and your involvement.
16: Sure, so that's... Okay, that's probably been since uh, 2014. And I, I, of course, met them when I was living in Brooklyn. And it's a collective of musicians with a background in Indian classical music as well as other improvised traditions. And so currently I have a project with them, Ananta, which is um, Sanskrit for infinity. And um, it's a project that we developed at a residency last summer. so, But I've also played in their um, large ensemble in D, which was uh, our adaptation of Terry Riley's In C.
15: Well, thank you so much, Aaron Schrag, for being our guest today on Uh, All That Jazz. Thank you for having me. It's been really
16: wonderful to get
15: some insight into your musical career.
1: And thank you, Glenn Siegel, for bringing Aaron Schrag and for you being with us. It is such an honor. You have been listening to Talk the Talk.
8: I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game
11: of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files.
16: Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can Say Something. We all can Say Something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and
6: find opportunities to Say Something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your
4: community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. WHMP North